Coming up on the show, a very special interview with the founder of Elementary OS, a discovery of the week that might just help your eyeballs, plus the announcement of our very first official distro challenge, and another song from the source. This is Linux for Everyone, Episode 7, and it starts right now. Soy Fernando Leal y estamos escuchando Linux for Everyone en España. Bienvenido a casa. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the show, and thank you so much for listening, for sharing, for reviewing, for participating in this thing. It's really great to have you along for the ride. So this should be a really fun, not to mention informative, episode. I've always wanted to speak one-on-one with someone who is running a Linux distribution, who is at the top and guiding it, and I've always wanted to ask them, What is it like behind the scenes? What goes into this massive undertaking? So it really rocks to have the opportunity to sit down and speak to Daniel, the founder of Elementary OS. But before we do that, I want to just get into a little bit of housekeeping, and then we're going to knock out Discovery of the Week and our Distro Challenge announcement, and then we're going to drop right into the interview, okay? First of all, I want to give a big grateful warm hug to uh, James, Mark P., Maya Culpa, Dustin Wilson, and Sean Davis. They are a few of this show's 42 patrons, and I really appreciate you guys. Thank you. And I say thank you because, you know, researching, recording, interviewing, uh, editing, promoting the show, it, it takes a considerable amount of time. And don't get me wrong, I love every minute of it. I I love doing this show. But I'll be honest with you, if Linux for Everyone or podcasting in general uh, became something that I could call a part-time job, I would not complain. Anyway, if you'd like to make a uh, one-time or recurring donation, there's two ways you can do that now. You can support the show on Patreon, and pledging $4 or more per month will get you each episode a day early, and in 320k audio. And I just opened a LibrePay account. So if you'd like to make a one-time donation there, you can do that. And I'll have the links to both in the show notes. Okay, let's get into our discovery of the week. And this one took me a little bit by surprise. But first, let me give you a quick bit of context. So I've been using my System76 Oryx Pro probably three or four months straight, uh, exclusively for everything. And my, my one complaint when I got this laptop was that fonts did not seem as crisp, as readable, as easy on the eyes. It certainly wasn't remotely bad, but I was coming from the, uh, 4k display on a 13 inch Dell XPS 13 and moving to a 16-inch 1080p display on the Oryx Pro. And I, I just, I got used to it. it. It stopped bothering me, and I carried on. Now, every time I mention a distribution that I use, the community pretty much says, hey, have you tried Cinnamon? Hey, what about Cinnamon? Hey, you should check out Cinnamon. So I decided to quickly fire up a live USB of Linux Mint, just browse around a bit, maybe consider it for a future uh, distro challenge. And immediately, the the crispness and the readability of the fonts everywhere across the system, the menus, the desktop, the applications, uh, like Firefox, for example. And I thought, what the heck is happening here? What, what's the big difference? What am I, what am I missing in, in uh, GNOME? What's happening with Pop! OS? And why is this so much of a noticeable difference? So I started digging around, I talked to a few of you on Twitter, I did a little bit of research, and came to the conclusion that Cinnamon looked better because of the font defaults. So I'm talking about the font hinting and anti-aliasing. 
I'm not necessarily talking about the chosen font, but the actual, the, the way that they're displayed. So you have things called font hinting and anti-aliasing. So if you happen to have GNOME tweaks installed or your distribution has font settings like this uh, pre-installed, go to those options and look at hinting. So hinting, you have full, medium, slight, or none. And then under anti-aliasing, you have none, standard, and sub-pixel. So what I noticed is that with Linux Mint, hinting was set to slight, and anti-aliasing was set to sub-pixel. So just to make sure that I hadn't tweaked my font settings on Pop! OS, I threw a live USB into uh, GNOME boxes, which we talked about last week, installed GNOME tweaks, which pulls whatever settings already exist, and realized that out of the box, Pop! OS uses slight hinting as well, but only standard anti-aliasing. And I'm sure that was a design choice, and I'm sure that any distribution who chooses these um, defaults do it for a reason, right? But when I changed Pop! OS to subpixel instead of standard anti-aliasing and logged out, logged back in, oh my god, it was it was night and day. It was it was a revelation. Everything was I I guess crisper than I realized it could be on this display. And it just changed everything. So so I guess my discovery of the week for you is to dig into those settings and see what works best for you. It's going to be dependent probably on your um, color scheme, your desktop theme, the type of display you have. But if you're on a laptop and you have an LCD display, which is incredibly common, I would seriously consider using slight hinting and subpixel anti-aliasing. And uh, give it a shot. Let me know how that works out for you. What ended up concerning me after I stumbled across all of this is that there was not an easy way to get at these settings on Pop! OS. And there's not an easy way to get at these settings in a lot of different GNOME desktop distributions. Now, I understand that these types of settings are considered a bit more advanced, and you don't want to overwhelm or burden a user with too many options, right? I totally get that. But considering the world of difference this made, at least in my experience, I think that this should be something that users can get at right out of the box. That's my opinion, and that is the discovery of the week. So way, way back in episode one, I promised you distro hoppers that you'd have something to sink your teeth into. And aside from my chat about Endeavor OS with Connor Murphy, that hasn't really happened. And that changes right now. The first Linux for Everyone distro challenge is going to be MX Linux. Last week, I was digging through some of my older Forbes articles and, uh, you know, back when I started this crazy Linux journey, I had this series called A Linux Noob Reviews. And that would be me reviewing the installer of, say, Deepin or Pop! OS or OpenSUSE Leap. And I did that because I have this weird obsession with installers. It's, it's the first contact you make beyond the website of a distribution that you install you know it's it's what gives you that first impression and it's what will entice you to maybe continue and leave it on your pc and use it it could be could become your daily driver or it could result in you just pulling your hair out and moving on so i thought you know what i i heard about the mx linux 19 beta and i thought well i'm going to go back and check out the MX Linux 18.3 installer. I'm not going to really use the distro, but I, I just want to experience that installer and, and write some impressions about it. And you know what? I was kind of impressed. Aside from that outdated gray color scheme that's used in the installer, I liked what I saw. There were a few surprises along the way. Welcome surprises, really. But I'm going to leave those for you to discover. And I haven't started using this yet. I've only done the installer, and I have the installer article uh, over at Forbes.com. I'll leave a link to that in the show notes. But for this first distro challenge, and hopefully for many to come, 
I want to do this as a community. I want to do it together. And I don't want to jumpstart without you guys. In other words, I don't want to say, hey, the distro challenge is MX Linux and let me talk 20 minutes about it. Uh, I want to give you a chance to experience that alongside me and, and the rest of the community. So let's spend the next three or four weeks with MX Linux 19. And the beta just came out a little while ago. So I'm hoping that over the course of this distro challenge, we might get to see the beta evolve and uh, possibly lead into the final release. If that doesn't happen, that's okay. But I did a poll across um, Telegram and Twitter and Facebook, and the average was about 25% of you have used MX Linux, and about 75% of you have not used MX Linux. So I thought this would be a good starting point, uh, a good distro to check out. So MX Linux 19 is based on Debian 10. And it uses the XFCE desktop environment, and that is going to be 4.14. So you get a little bit of that newness that uh, everyone's been talking about with XFCE, the high DPI support, less screen tearing, a lot of improvements, uh, both visually and under the hood. So what I would encourage you to do, if you want to join the MX Linux Distro Challenge Party, install it on something like VirtualBox or GNOME Boxes, or preferably if you have a spare machine, or spare space on your hard drive, do the bare metal. Do it that way. You'll get the, the full experience. Uh, you'll understand the, the true speed of the system, and I think you'll uh, gain a better appreciation for it. And as we go along, don't hesitate to jump into the various communities. Linux, the number four, everyone. On Telegram, on Mastodon, on Twitter, on Facebook. And that'll be a good place to share some of your, you know, cool discoveries or get help and just chat about it with uh, with other members of, of this awesome community. If you want to get your thoughts about MX Linux onto the show, there's two ways you can do that. The first is just record an audio message, any any audio format. Don't worry about that. Send that in an email to Linux for everyone spelled out. Linux for everyone at pm.me or just use your keyboard and send me a standard email, your opinions, your thoughts, your concerns, uh, whatever. Linux for everyone at pm.me. And I will try to both read and play some of the best comments. So if you want to join us, head over to mxlinux.org. You can pick up the ISO there, download it, create a live USB, throw it on a virtual machine, whatever you want to do. They have uh, ISOs for both 32-bit and 64-bit users. They're not abandoning 32-bit users anytime soon. That's straight from their mouth. And remember that if you have a, a dated computer that's you know a little bit old, maybe five, six, seven, eight years, because it does use XFCE, which is nice and light, doesn't really hog a lot of your system resources. So, distro challenge number one, MX Linux 19 beta. Let's do this. So, my very special guest today is someone you might know from the User Error podcast, and he also happens to be the founder of Elementary OS. I am, of course, talking about Daniel Foray. Daniel, how you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. How you doing? I'm doing really well. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you, and and thank you for showing up and and uh, being our guest today. Thank you for inviting me on. So the first question I love to ask people is, I mean, what is your Linux origin story? What what got you into this crazy thing in the first place? Yeah, sure. Um, well, for me, it it started uh, when I was in high school. And uh, do you remember dig.com? It was yeah, like, Kevin Rose, right? Yeah, right. So yeah, oh yeah, I love Dig. I used to listen to the the Dig podcast. Mm-hmm. So Dig was was super big, and and so I visited Dig every single day to see what was new and look in the tech stuff, and you know find out what was happening. And at the time, um, I was really big into tweaking on Windows XP and installing all the mods, and I had like the you know give the Windows shadows mod and like that kind of stuff, right? 
And um, this thing popped up where somebody was like, hey, check this out. Um, this is this thing called Corora, and they are doing this demo of this new crazy thing called Compiz. And you can boot it up on the CD. You don't have to install anything, so you don't have to worry about erasing Windows or anything. But just, you know, burn it onto a CD real quick, boot it up, and check it out. And so I did that, and uh, it was just the coolest thing, and it was so different and it was like, wow, okay, forget modding Windows. Like, I can use this Linux thing and do anything I want and actually, like, realize these ideas I have about wanting to have a nicer operating system on my PC or that I have right now. Was this the time of wobbly Windows and and being able to kind of rotate your desktop as a as a 3D cube? Oh, yeah. Yeah, spinning cube and, and the fire and fold it up into a little airplane when it minimizes and like all the all the crazy stuff. Nice. So uh, did you stick with that for a while? Did you did you just nuke and pave? Did you get rid of Windows and then and then go with Linux from that point forward or did it take a while? Uh, I definitely dual booted for a long time um, because at, I think around this time I was also big into playing Call of Duty 2. <laughs> so I had that uh, on the Windows side. But um, so I, I stuck with Corora for a while and then um, I found out that it was based on Gentoo. And so I was like, okay, what's Gentoo? And so I went to check that out and I went through the whole like. <sighs> No. Um, I can't remember what stage or whatever install it is where it's like from scratch, you know, and you're oh, doing the whole thing and I printed out the whole big manual. And so it was this really cool, like learning experience of like, how is an operating system put together? And it was, if you haven't done something like that, I totally would recommend just for fun. Like I would never recommend to run a system like that because you don't want to do that to it would take up all your time. But just to be like, okay, what are the components of an operating system? And, oh, yeah, like, it turns out I need a program to, like, manage my login screen or, like, connect to the wireless network. Or, like, you don't realize how many little programs are running in the background that do such simple things that you just take for granted. I I came across that that very thing when I first installed Arch. You know, you realize how much goes into it and how much uh, flexibility that you ultimately have when you choose to install your operating system um, in, in kind of a modular way. It was fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a learning experience for sure. So fast forward several years, you're helping to create some GTK2 themes. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I, I think that it's one of those things where when you start thinking about how things are designed and like start looking at them and, and thinking, I wish that this thing was this or it was a little bit different like that. Or, um, you know, theming is kind of a place to start. And it does give you a lot of interesting power to change things, but there's a limit to it. And so um, for me, it, it started from like tweaking Windows stuff to do really basic things like shadows to GTK2 themes where I could have a little bit more control over like button corner radiuses and things like that, right? And then it gets to a point where you're like, okay, but actually I think I want the button over here instead, or I don't really want this separator there. Or, at, you know, at, the, at this time, this is when um, Nautilus, the, the file browser in GNOME had like three toolbars or something stacked on top of each other. And it was like, wow, okay, if you know, let's think about how we can how we can change this so I have more room on my screen for the content that I'm actually working on. Um, that's kind of where it started as far as like, okay, themes only go so far. We need to actually dive into the code and start messing with these apps. So was this was this effectively a product of your uh, your dissatisfaction with um, the user experience? Of, of existing Linux distributions? Yeah, and I'd say it even started with um, some dissatisfaction with the UX and Windows. And at some point, I had picked up an older Mac, and I was going through it, and it was like, okay, you know, this isn't like what everybody makes it out to be either. Um, it seemed like the only like real viable path towards like, let's do something different and better was to stick with the Linux option. So what was happening that that inspired you to start working on elementary OS on an entirely new distribution? You know, I think a lot of things were happening, and I think that it wasn't really 
super unique at that time to be rethinking things. I mean, we're looking at um, when Unity was coming around and the big shift from GNOME 2 to GNOME 3, which at the time was still like codenamed Topaz or something. And so there was a lot of people going, hey, you know what, what's the next big new thing and let's rethink everything and and so i don't think i was super unique in that space of thinking about like what's something different that we could do or where could we go something that we pretty quickly discovered was that just having like these different apps that we've written and stuff it wasn't enough and it wasn't getting them to enough people and what we really needed is some kind of distribution platform and that's kind of what Linux distributions typically are, right, is a way for applications to be delivered. And um, so that's kind of the route we went is we went, okay, we need some way to get our apps in front of people. So let's have a distribution. Elementary Jupiter comes out, I think it was uh, 2012. So what was the initial, if you remember, what was the initial reception like? Oh, I feel like that it was good. Um, there was a lot of hype that was that we generated. So we actually we had a big snafu. We were like, we're going to make CDs and all this stuff. And so people did a bunch of pre-orders. And then we'd never done anything like it before. And so it was taking us forever to actually get them printed. And by the time that we were able to figure out how we were going to print and ship and image and everything, all these CDs, um, that we were coming up on the next release so we had to like really apologize to everybody and we refunded a lot of people but some people were really cool about it and they just wanted to support stuff we ended up um, shipping out um, luna cds to to all these people that pre-ordered jupiter cds but i think in general jupiter was just kind of this whole thing of like nobody has any idea what they're doing but let's try to do it anyway (laughs) so i think it was six years into the development of elementary os where you guys finally ditched, you know, 0.1, 0.2, 0.3 version number and skipped directly to 5.0. <laughs> what, what was what was your mindset and what was, um, I guess, what was holding you back from saying, hey, this is version 1.0? There were a lot of things in the desktop environment in particular that were still kind of piecemeal. Like, luckily, because of the way that... A lot of really smart people that came before us were really generous. Um, We were able to use bits and pieces from GNOME or from XFCE or other desktop environments to to put together our desktop environment and kind of bootstrap it. So it wasn't until um, very recently that we actually built out all of our own system settings panels. Like we were importing GNOME ones for like ever and they were kind of patched in. Uh, actually, we're still um, two panels short. We're still missing um, color management and uh, Wacom tablet management. And someone's working on the Wacom one right now, so I'm hoping we'll be able to ship that uh, relatively soon. But it, it took a long time for all these little parts and pieces to be something that weren't borrowed from other desktop environments. It took a while for us to get to this point where we felt like, you know what, this isn't a piecemeal product anymore. We have now built out all of the things that we were looking to build. And so we have a baseline and now we can move forward from there. Who would you describe as your target audience for elementary OS? Well, I think um, that really what we're trying to work toward is building something that is more of a mass market appeal. And so we always look at, like, who are the people that are downloading elementary OS? And um, and I haven't pulled these statistics up for a little while, so they might have changed a couple points here and there. But the last time I pulled it up, I think it was something like 70-something percent of our users uh, are downloading from Windows and um, Mac OS. And so I think that that's kind of like where we want to be. And that's what we're looking at is we want to attract new people who haven't used an open source operating system before and kind of pull them into the ecosystem. So it's less about like trying to win out over other Linux distributions and more about getting more people to use open source software that maybe haven't before. So the big elephant in the room, anytime I bring up elementary OS seems to be 
oh, it's it's that Mac OS clone, right? How how have you guys dealt with that? Well, I think that a lot of people come from a place of thinking like, oh, a desktop environment either has to be Windows-like or Mac-like, and it's not very Windows-like, right? So it must be Mac-like. It's kind of frustrating because it is really dismissive of a lot of the work we do and a lot of the research that we do. And especially now that Cassidy's on full time, like he does a ton of research and he's always like really engaging with users and really rethinking things. And um, so it's kind of unfortunate that people have kind of this dismissive attitude. Um, But I think that we have done a pretty good job of continuing to differentiate ourselves and to work on unique features or unique designs. And, and so I think that just over time, you know, that, that, that perception will, will change as we grow more and more. So back when I did the elementary OS challenge, I think it was six months ago or so, I was initially really resistant. You know, it it felt restrictive to me, you know, the, the no minimize button. Right. And of course I'm trying to, I'm still at a point where I'm trying to use Linux like it's Mac OS or windows instead of it's its own unique thing. But the more I used it, the more I think I described it as refreshingly restrictive. I've only been around, you know, this, this world for about a year, but in, in doing the research on elementary, it seems like you've had a very singular focus and vision for how it's going to look and how it's going to behave and that vision involves, um, I should say that vision doesn't involve a lot of user customization. It, do you want to, I mean, can you speak to that at all about why you've, you've sort of locked down the, the customization features of, of elementary and how that might benefit the user? So we actually have a little bit about this in our human interface guidelines and why uh, we approach design from this kind of perspective. And one of the the biggest technical reasons is that the more kind of changes that have to be maintained in the code, the harder it is for it to understand and the harder it is for it to be maintained. And so you can kind of end up with these completely unmaintained possible configurations. And so that's kind of a really difficult situation, like especially um, something that we had been dealing with a lot recently with the work on the installer is that previously we had this whole separate like OEM install path right through Ubiquity that nobody ever used or tested or touched. And so a lot of it was really broken and we had no idea how broken it was because nobody uses that. And so by kind of rethinking that to be part of the same installation flow as the regular user installation flow and saying like our mantra for the a lot of the design decisions in the installer is every install is an OEM install. And so by looking at it from that angle, we were able to say, okay, now we know that when an OEM goes to install the operating system, that that user flow is being tested and it's being used and that the bugs are being reported and that having the same kind of experience allows us to make sure that that's a good experience. But there's also another angle and it took us a while to kind of suss out like why exactly we felt this way about things. But um, I think we finally kind of nailed it recently. And that is that we're looking at configuration from an accessibility standpoint And the kind of big litmus test for us is if we're going to add an option, is it because it makes the product more accessible to more people or are we passing off design and engineering decisions onto our users? And so that's kind of the big conversation that we have around options. And so in a lot of ways, it's really enabling because you can say, okay, you know what, this thing, maybe it is like, or maybe our design team has really strong opinions about the way this thing should operate. But having that option makes the product more accessible to different kinds of users. That's a really strong argument for having that option in there. But it also makes us pair back and really question ourselves about, like, who does this 
option make the product more accessible for or who does this option target and why do they want this thing and it makes us really consider like what's the purpose of this or what problem does it solve i think a relevant example of this at least is your philosophy on dark modes right you were quoted on reddit saying that using dark style as a developer choice not a user choice forcing developers to have to support two style sheets takes away creative freedom and restricts their ability to do good visual design. We want developers to feel confident that their app is being used the way they designed it. That really stood out to me because the way that you approach your relationship with developers and the way that you approach the development of elementary OS, it it makes it a very focused product. You know, I, I have a bit of a marketing background and it's so much easier to market something that is very focused. If you look at, uh, I'm just going to pull an example out of my hat, a desktop distribution like XFCE, it is so flexible and so customizable, and you can make it look like literally anything that you want to, but it's also difficult to tell people what they should expect out of it. I think that brings me around to the App Center. And that's that's an area where you guys are really distinguishing yourselves, in my opinion. Not only are you encouraging developers to create software just for elementary OS, but you also have a pay-what-you-want model. When did you guys decide to take that approach, and and why? Well, I think um, the pay-what-you-want model was introduced with Luna, I believe. I I think we brought it on pretty early, and that was something where we had like a lot of big discussions about there's there's some like competing needs within the project and one of them is that things need to be funded and especially as our user base grows it's important that like when we first started out we could have one server to host our website and our downloads and everything right and it didn't really matter cuz not many people were using it and it was really cheap but as we get more users we have to have a lot more servers. Um, we have to have a CDN to distribute the downloads of the operating system itself. And now we have servers that we run for building applications and for serving the downloads and updates of those applications. Not only do we have all these infrastructure costs, but we also have a payroll now because we have full-time employees. So as the organization scales and as our user base grows and we need to provide more services to them, our costs increase. So we we definitely need to have some kind of business model. And we started out with just kind of a donation thing. But, um, you know, donations are such a small scale that it doesn't really match like what we need to be able to serve all the people that are interested in using elementary OS. So we were looking at other models, and uh, we tried doing the thing of selling CDs. Um, but um, as I'm sure you've heard, I think it was OS Disk recently that yeah, uh, went down, out of business, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, and especially now that people are booting off of USBs, the cost is really prohibitive there. And so it's not really like a great business model. Um, we still have some retail with like t-shirts and mugs and things like that, but it's, it's a super insignificant portion of the revenue that we bring in. And even Patreon is a really small portion of the revenue that we bring in. So we were looking at um, how do we come to a model where we can raise enough revenue to support all the people that are interested in using elementary OS, but we don't price out people who can't afford it or that are in a country where one US dollar is a lot of money. So after a lot of discussion um, and seeing the success of things like Humble Indie Bundle in the gaming space, we decided, hey, let's try this thing out. Let's try this pay-what-you-want thing out, and um, let's make the price floor zero so that if people really want to, they can still go in and, and get it for free. And so we've been doing that for a long time, and um, I think when we switched over from having a flow where we had like a donate button right next to the download button. When we switched over from doing that to doing a pay what you want, including zero, that the amount of revenue that we were making increased by like 10 times or something. It was like a huge increase, like instantly. No kidding. So, you're, you're talking about the, you're talking about elementary itself, not the app center. Right. Just for the, um, the operating system itself. 
Oh, interesting. So, just that small of a change. Mm-hmm. So just that huh. small design change really increased the revenue a ton. And so when we were looking at App Center, um, we wanted to make sure that developers had a revenue model built in as well. And something that was expected from other app stores was being able to have that kind of revenue baked in there. And so we wanted to bring that model to our developers, too. And we knew that since users would be familiar with it from downloading the operating system, that it would translate there. I think that we still have some challenges um, in the store to bring up revenue for our developers there. But I think that um, so far that it's been a successful experiment in that um, we have developers that are telling us that they've made more money through App Center than they have through donations anywhere else. Really? Now, are these apps uh, are these apps that they're creating? Do they exist outside of App Center? Yeah, actually, um, especially recently, a lot of um, the apps that are in App Center are available um, as flat packs on FlatHub or through the Snap Store. Um, there's been a lot of people who are interested in doing this kind of cross-platform packaging, and um, the App Center developers have generally been pretty receptive to it and accommodating of that. If a developer who is creating an app for App Center is also distributing that via Flatpak and, and Snaps, which are ostensibly available on any Linux distribution, right? Ubuntu, Fedora, the huge ones. You're saying that generally they are making a much higher income selling it on the App Center than they are getting donations from all of those other sources. At least that's what, what people have been been telling us. and And I think that it kind of makes sense because in those other places, like the revenue model is so disconnected, right? Like if you were to go download the app through, through flat hub, like you have to be actively searching for where you could fund the development of this app, right? You'd have to already really care about it. You're never really prompted or presented with that, that question. I feel like a lot of people want to support developers and they want to donate, but if you're going to make it next to impossible for them to figure out how, they're probably just going to forget about it. Yeah, so I think that's something that we've really taken that approach of and that um, in some ways that we're being kind of aggressive about, like when we changed things in App Center so that um, apps that you haven't paid for yet, um, that you have to manually update them. We don't bundle them in with update all anymore because we really, really want to put that question in front of people multiple times and have them reaffirm that you know, they, they're really sure that they're, they don't want to support the funding of, of this application development because we think it's really important. And, and so we want to try to find a balance where it's not like aggressive nagware, but something where there's a clear value exchange going on right now where someone is giving you something and we would like for you to give back. Yeah, it's not. I mean, I, I've seen that, and it's not. Um, it's not something that I would consider nagware, but I can I can see how there might have been a little bit of blowback with that decision. Was there anything? I, I don't know. Was there any loud criticism surrounding that, or was it pretty generally accepted? You know, I think um, we did hear some people that were upset about it, but I think that we've improved the way that we communicate these kind of changes like a ton. And uh, we really like walked through on our blog, like what the motivations were and why we thought this was fair. And um, I think we we did a good job of of addressing things pretty head on and, and getting ahead of the conversation um, so that people like knew like what are, what are the motivations for this? And it's not like, oh, you know, greedy company X is just trying to scrape another dollar after me. It's, you know, like, hey, we really want developers to be able to. Like, it would be awesome, like, the day that we have our first App Center developer who that's their full-time job, right? Like, we don't have that yet, but that's what we want to get to is that place where it's like, oh, this person makes all of their money by developing open-source applications through App Center. How are you guys getting these developers to create? Because there's a lot of great apps in the App Center. I want to I steer everybody towards the App Center because they're, what I've noticed about App Center is... There are so many good apps that do just one thing really, really well. And that's what an app should be. Um, but my question is, how are you guys recruiting these developers? How are they, how are they landing on your doorstep? 
Well, I think the the biggest thing that we're doing differently from everyone else is providing a really clear and concise development path. Um, when you look at what other kind of app stores are doing right now, especially with like the Snap Store with FlatHub, that um, people are kind of looking at it from a perspective of like package up your app and whatever technology your app uses, like that's great, package it up and stick it in our store. And we're kind of looking at it from the perspective of like you don't have an app yet. You haven't started that. And um, we're going to show you how to make one and packaging is a part of that process but um, we're, we're kind of coming from that perspective of like you've never written an application to run on elementary os before and you don't know what toolkits are available or anything like that and so we're going to recommend you a build system and we're going to recommend you a toolkit and we're going to recommend you a programming language and and we're going to show you how all these pieces fit together and how translations work and start to finish like all the different parts and pieces and then, um, you know, it, it's all one whole process of like building your application, packaging it and submitting it to the store. And we're not looking at it from like a perspective of like you already have an app and we have a store and like, you know, just package it. I wanted to move over to something that I actually brought up with uh, Ryan, a.k.a. DOS Geek on episode four. We were we were sort of dreaming about this ultimate team up between um, elementary and System76. And that's because there seems to be a lot of synergy between these two companies. I know you share the same installer, but what is what is the nature of that synergy? What what is the the kind of the roots of that um relationship that you have with System76? And is there anything planned for the future? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um you know, I, I met Carl at uh, a bunch of developer summit years and years ago, um, but I think it probably wasn't until um, Cassidy started working at System76 that there was more of like an elementary uh, influence or cross-pollination there. And as they started thinking about software more, and um, I think it was really kind of when unity was starting to become not a thing anymore and that there were questions at system 76 about like okay what do we do with software now that um we kind of were like hey you know we're doing some stuff over here i know that um carl uh, went a little bit different of a direction with gnome and things like that but there was still a lot of things like you know ideas where we could collaborate or talk to each other about and um the installer was a big one there, but also um, they hosted uh, our App Center Sprint when we were working on that. And so they ship um, their pop shop is based on um, App Center. And so there's kind of uh, some software efforts there that that we're kind of looking at from a couple different angles here. And, and it's been a good, like, supportive relationship there. Is that something that 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 seems like a a fairly common story that I hear among open source developers? Are there, I don't know, are there any other um, distributions or 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 groups that you, that you guys have a really close relationship with? Yeah, I think you know people always try to make it this thing where like everybody's in competition and you know I don't know what the what the idea is, but um, we always talk to lots of people and. Um, you know, I um, am on Telegram with uh, Alan Pope a lot, you know, because of the show. But uh, also, I'll just ping him about stuff and be like, hey, you know, we had this question about this package in Ubuntu or something. Or how how did you guys deal with this issue or something? And and so there's been like an open channel of communication there um, for us to look at. And actually, just the other day, um, something popped up with like a, a patch they carry on account service. And it was like, hey, you know, who can I poke about this thing? Because I, I, I don't know if we need this patch anymore because things have changed upstream. And so the, it's mutually beneficial for us to have these kind of open communication channels because it's something where we can help Ubuntu be better. And um, because they're upstream for us on a lot of these packages, it helps us be better too. Yeah, and I, I hear that a lot, you know, from from the like graphics driver stacks all the way up to distributions themselves. That is definitely one of the advantages of of the open source ecosystem, the openness of open source development. Do you think that it can be a bad thing when it comes to like marketing and and building hype? 
Yeah, I think it's tough because in some ways there is that aspect of like if if somebody kind of goes through um, a a very young code base and and shows it off like it's a final product that they're going to encounter issues that haven't really shown up in testing yet or that are known about but just haven't been addressed yet. And so if people are looking at that, thinking that that's like the final quality of the software, then um, it gives us kind of a bad rap and people go, oh, you know, it's buggy because I saw this YouTube video or this thing didn't work and it was just like an in-development feature. But on the other end of the spectrum, I think that in some ways it doesn't matter in the end because you have people that like have no idea what's been going on. And it's almost like you can never have enough publicity because people will be like, elementary have they even had a release in the last five years you know i haven't heard anything about them (laughs) so i I think there's there's extremes right and you never know like what's going to reach whose ears and i think that um you know just as long as we try to do a good job in our communication and um, make sure that as an organization um we're talking about things in a way that um, really describes the state of where they are or not trying not to get too ahead of ourselves or making sure that we're um, being open in our communication about like why we arrived at certain decisions or like how pieces of things fit together. But- I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just, I have to call this out because that is what really drew me to you guys in the first place was that complete openness. It was when you guys were posting on Medium and, and like you're doing now with your own blog, which I applaud you on by the way, because it looks great and it's super fast. It's not just an announcement. It is seven to ten paragraphs alongside illustrations of what the early design was like and and why you arrived at that decision. And I think that that that's not something we see a lot of. We see the openness in terms of here's the source code and here's what we're going to do, but not why we're doing that. Yeah, and I I think that's one of the things that um, is a big part of our communication strategy Um, with regards to letting people know that we are a serious design shop and that we're going through this iterative design process and we're doing user research or like um, letting people know that we do read the bug tracker and that when we design these things or when we build out these new versions of, of different parts of the operating system, that we're doing so from the perspective of looking at what kind of feedback that we're getting from our users. We're almost out of time, but I wanted to throw a few community questions at you. And you can answer these, you know, lightning speed if if you prefer to. The first one is, what is the next big milestone for you guys? You you guys have made a lot of waves and are making a big impact on on the the Linux world, but what's next? What's what's in your sights? So, um the the next biggest thing is actually a set of things. And um, it's kind of a whole new first run experience. And so we've we've shipped two parts of that so far. Um, one was the new onboarding app. So when um, you do a fresh install of elementary OS and the first time that a user logs in, they get this little window in the middle of the screen and uh, it's totally optional. There's a big skip all button, but it kind of walks you through some of the more um, hidden, but very useful optional features like housekeeping and location services and a couple other things like that. And, um, so we really wanted to do something to surface these kind of features that people don't necessarily know about, but are actually like really helpful, like privacy and security features. So that's one. And we just shipped onboarding recently. Uh, another piece was the new greeter, the login and lock screen. And we just shipped that, um, I think like a, maybe a week ago or something. It was very recent. So if people are updating elementary OS right now, they, they will have this correct. Right. Okay. And the the login and lock screen was another really big piece um, because it facilitates this kind of new installation flow we have because the login and lock screen provides initial setup. So we had to have a, um, a login and lock screen that knew what to do when there were no users on the system yet. And so now the new login lock screen, when there are no users installed, no, um, well, okay, that's not actually technically true, but no, like, users that, the way we consider users, right? Um, 
there's nobody on the screen yet, the login and lock screen knows to launch the initial setup window that'll walk you through things like selecting your locale and your keyboard map and creating a new user and setting a password and things like that. And then it'll pop that up. And, and like, so it's, it's, it really is this huge necessary part for the real big thing, which is the new installer. And the new installer and I mentioned earlier that we took this approach of every install is an OEM install. And so it's a completely different flow from the old one. And what happens in the new installer, if you're familiar with um, like Pop! OS, mm-hmm. is the installer only handles actually the installation part. And then you turn the computer off. And from there, you can either reboot the computer and continue setting up. Or you can hand the computer off to somebody else. So it's great for OEMs who, like, they're not the people that are using it at the end. They're just doing the installation process. But it's also great if you're, like, a repair shop or if you're just giving a gift to somebody. So it kind of covers all these different use cases where before we had this untested and alternate OEM install path. So now we've kind of flipped this experience over and we've made this the norm so it's a completely different installation experience. We have a totally new first boot experience with the initial setup, with the new greeter, and then the first time that a person logs in, then they have the new onboarding. So it's like a whole set of new applications to entirely change like the first time you use the operating system. And it really looks, it looks so good. It's so elegant and it, it feels so polished and... uh I saw um, a screenshot. I haven't actually had a chance to use this yet, but if I'm not mistaken, you know, let's say you have a, a an elementary OS environment where there's three different users, and it will actually pull their background, their wallpaper at the login screen. Yeah, so um, there's a blog post on our blog, more about the design process of the greeter. But um, one of the things that we realized is that it turns out a lot of people don't set an avatar for their user on their own computer. <laughs> don't so, do that either unless I'm logged into Google or something, yeah. Right, and so the way um, that the old design worked, we really relied on that avatar to differentiate accounts that weren't focused. And like we didn't even show the label of the username before. So if you had like five accounts and none of them had an avatar set, it was impossible to tell like whose account was <laughs> whose. You'd have to like go click through everything. So we really wanted to say, okay, well... You know, maybe they don't set an avatar, but almost everybody sets a background. And so that was something that we pulled in. And so we're trying to make it like these really easily differentiated little cards that show an avatar and your background and your username all the time. So that way, if you have a computer that's like a family computer or something, that it, it makes it very easy to see like, oh, okay, this this is that person. That's really cool. And And really, you guys have to check this out. I mean, throw... You know, throw it in a VM if you need to, but I, this is this is one of the slickest login screens that I have seen, and I do a lot of distro hopping, so it's definitely worth checking out. And I feel like that's it's it's really representative of the entire OS. And I'm not I'm not saying this just because you're on the show, Daniel. I have I can point you to Twitter proof that this happened <laughs> way before we arranged this interview. But I've been on Pop OS for about. I don't know, four, five months, three, four months. And as soon as you guys started, there was this kind of avalanche of activity around you guys. There was the new blog and there was the the new installer and the greeter and all this other stuff. And for the first time in several months, I felt really pulled away from Pop! OS and feeling like I really need to give this another dedicated install and, and spend some time with it and see how much has improved and changed because it's really, it's kind of hard to ignore you guys with all the movement that there is, you know, you know, it, it's funny that it, you describe it as an avalanche because it, it is kind of that way in that like people usually only really see the movement as it's falling down, but they don't really see like the trickle of each snowflake adding up to it. Right. And that's kind of how it's been is, that a lot of these things that we're coming out with have been in development for like a couple years now and we've been setting up the dominoes and now it's all kind of coming together and it's ready to fall down. All right. I have two more questions for you. Question number one, what is your day to day 
look like when it comes to managing elementary OS? It's it's kind of a tough question because um, there is a lot of things that are like, you know, kind of take them as they come and they're different. But um, there there is some regular stuff like um, we set up this, this thing uh, a while ago where every Tuesday is our reviews day. And so we make a big point to do code reviews because um, there's kind of a bottleneck there where like we really believe in code review and we don't want to merge in anything that hasn't had at least two people look at it. Um, but it can make it hard sometimes where um, you'll have something that's been worked on for a long time and then nobody's looked at it. And so it's kind of stuck. So uh, every Tuesday is reviews day. And so um, I try to dedicate a good amount of my Tuesday to looking at other people's code and giving feedback on that. Um, but I, I've also been spending a lot more time recently in GitHub projects in general. And um, something that we've been getting as feedback is that it's not always clear like what the focus is or what things need to be worked on. So I've been trying to use GitHub projects more to kind of say like, okay, um, you know, here is a project that I'm working on right now. And it could be something like I want um, all of the um, code name properties of the switchboard plugins to be RDNN to match their dot desktop because I'm going to do something with that later. And so I'll create a project for it. And so that way it kind of brings up that visibility and I can see the progress of, of that kind of thing. And sometimes it's things like, um, you know, oh, uh, I want to make sure that all of our applications are using the Granite version of message dialogue instead of the GTK one because they changed the design upstream and we want to keep the design a little bit different. Um, so I, I've been trying to use those projects more. And so I spend a lot of time in projects going, okay, what's outstanding right now? What do I need to work on? Um, what's a project that's coming up that I can outline real quick? But I think that um, in a lot of ways that um, it really depends on where the momentum is and what people are interested in. And you kind of got to jump in when people are excited about a thing. Um, but when there's not something that is really special happening, that um, I've been spending a lot of time recently going through some older code and um, just kind of auditing it, auditing it, I guess, and and seeing like what's changed, what new library features aren't we using here? Um, does this match our code style anymore? And um, trying to reconsider some old architecture decisions that we've made in certain places and, and make sure that uh, we're really working on performance and memory usage and things like that. And that's that's definitely an important aspect of, of a distro. So it sounds like you're there's no shortage of, of work to do. No. <laughs> but it also sounds like you seriously enjoy what you're doing, and that's great. Yeah, it's definitely um, the funnest job that I've ever had and the most challenging, too. Um, but it is it is really rewarding to be able to make something. And I think that's something that I really enjoy about it is that feeling of having built something and then getting to kind of show it off and then look at it and go, I built that thing. And then however many hours it took me to do it, like I made a thing and now people get to use it. And that's fun. So for people who are using it or even for people who aren't using it, but just want to show their support, um, something I always tell people is you don't have to be a programmer. You don't have to know code to get involved in the community. And my question for you is how can people get involved with elementary OS? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's a totally great point that you don't have to be a programmer to make a difference. And uh, we have a page up on our website. It's elementary.io forward slash get dash involved. And uh, we list out there a whole bunch of different ways that, that you can get involved. And uh, it's everything from translations if you're bilingual, which is a huge one. We always need help translating things because there's always new strings that come into the operating system as we're developing. But uh, it also has the things to do with design. Or uh, if you are someone who is more technical um, but not a developer, then we really need your help with supporting other people. And Stack Exchange is a big part of that. And so there's a lot of people that go there and they ask questions about like, oh, like how do I, you know, get my Wi-Fi to work? And we really need um, help with people pointing them to where the documentation for things is, or helping write new documentation. I mean, that's another big one. Is is documentation is always useful. So there's there's listed a bunch of ways there. Whether you're a developer or a designer or neither of those things, 
um, that you can get involved. And then, of course, another big one is funding. And we could always um, use help with that because that enables us to hire more people to help in those areas, right? And that enables us to hire more designers and developers. And um, actually, um, one of our new part-timers is uh, Karen Sophia, where you can, she has a, a blog post that you can look at on our blog. And um, she does uh, not only a fulfillment of our Patreon rewards, um, but she also helps answer in email questions that come to us. So that's another important role that funding helps us enable. And my last question, I promise, who is your favorite emo band? Oh, what a tough one. You saved the hardest one for last. <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> Because I hear the, you know, you're a musician and I hear the influence there. I definitely hear like the, I don't know, get up kids and, you know, um, I think like a couple of my, my biggest emo band obsessions were like My Chemical Romance and Taking Back Sunday. And especially because they toured together, it's easy to make that like connection, right? Like the two of them and the dynamic that they have. And like, there are different bands, but they're both like really interesting in their own ways. Um, so I, it's a kind of a toss up there. <laughs> well, uh, okay. So tell us before you go, tell us where we can find you and tell us where we can find all the critical components of, of elementary OS. Yeah. So, uh, you can find me, um, well, if you go to Daniel com, I think that that's still a website. <laughs> it is. I checked earlier. Today. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. I haven't updated in a while, but it does have links to, uh, like my social media accounts and I think to, um, a couple of my apps and stuff like that. So you can check that out. Um, but for, uh, elementary, um, you can always go to elementary.io and we have links to everything there. Um, but if uh, you're really interested in like the source code, uh, you can go to uh, github.com forward slash elementary and you can see, I think we have um, over a hundred and something public repos there. And it's everything from like websites and, and every component that we build for the operating system. And like, you can just go crazy and look at all this stuff. Well, listen, thank you very, very much for, for being here. And I wish you guys all the success in the world and I hope you continue growing and and I hope that you keep that that eye towards perfection that you guys have had so far. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me on. Well, gang, it's been a long show, and I sincerely hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed putting it together. So let's slow things down a bit. Let's wind down with another song from The Source. This one comes courtesy of Clifford, and it is spelled C-L-I-F-F-V, RD. And Clifford found the open source DAW LMMS about five years ago. He tells me that he was looking for alternatives to FL Studio 5. He fell in love with it, and he has stuck with it ever since. This is a beautiful, melodic track that he released last year. It's called Mononoke. And you can find Clifford over at SoundCloud, Track Train, Twitter, and YouTube. And I'll have all the relevant links on the show notes at linuxforeveryone.fireside.fm. Until we talk again, take care and take care of each other.
I'm just babbling, basically. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, see, this is why I don't do live shows. Oh, excuse me. A little coffee burp there. <clears throat> <laughs> and that's the blooper. Yeah, editing. Um, Thank God for editing. 